All right, so I don't know if you can hear me. We're going to adjust this till you can. We're going to, um, it's time for the first, the kindergartners through fifth graders to come up and go downstairs with their leaders. So if you're in kindergarten through fifth grade, go ahead and come up here and line up and um, go that way. Um, so while they're doing that, um, just a little background. Um, I got the privilege of going to this conference with these kiddos. Um, Myself and Annie and Matt, two MCC students and eight, like Annie said, eight high school students. We got to go down to, um, I'm going to butcher how you say the name of the town, Siloam Springs, I think is how it's pronounced. Siloam something, whatever, it doesn't matter. In Arkansas, but we were on the campus of John Brown University, and uh, we basically just got to spend a week down there um, getting to know each other, loving on each other, learning about God. Um, getting to meet some people from the faith that are from other places, um, and so it's pretty cool. It's a pretty neat trip that um, the high schoolers have a, the privilege of going on every couple of years. We take them down there, and I've had the privilege of going along with them a couple of times now. Um, like Annie said, we spent the week looking at the life of Elijah and uh, some of the things that he went through as the prophet of Israel. Um, his story, if you want to go back and look at it, it's pretty incredible. It's, the vast majority of it is in First Kings at the end of the book. Um, we're going to look at specifically 1 Kings 19, 19 through 22, and 2 Kings 2, 1 through 14. Um, but Elijah led a pretty incredible life. He, uh, he did some things that were just like mind-blowing to me. Um, he was the voice of God to the people of Israel as their prophet. Um, he prophesied about a, a great drought. He lived in the desert and was fed by ravens. Um, God worked miracles through him, like multiplying oil and um, grain into bread so that a widow and her son could eat. And even through that, the widow's son ends up dying, and Elijah resurrects the kid from the grave. Um, he has this epic duel that Annie kind of alluded to with 450 prophets of Baal. Um, he flees an evil queen who wants to kill him, um, and then he meets with God on the same mountain that Moses was given the Ten Commandments, which is pretty incredible. Um, and then at the end of his life, he's one of two guys in the Old Testament to never die. He's, he ascends into heaven without ever experiencing death, which is kind of in the story we're going to look at today. Um, we're going to pick up Elijah's story near the very end. Um, he's just met with God on the mountain. He's been given instruction to anoint two new kings, one for the king of the kingdom of Israel and one for the kingdom of Aram. And he's also been given instruction to anoint his successor as prophet Elisha. That's what we're going to pick up in 1 Kings 19 if you want to follow along with me. It's going to be up behind me, I think, but also your Bible if you've got it. So Elijah went from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his servant. I'm going to skip to chapter 2, verse Sorry, 2 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 now. When, Lord, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven in a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, the Lord has sent me to Bethel. But Elisha said, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, 
I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of prophets at Bethel came out to Elisha and asked, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, Elisha replied. So be quiet. Yeah. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here, Elisha. The Lord has sent me to Jericho. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So they went to Jericho. And the company of prophets at Jericho went up to Elisha and asked them, Do you know that the Lord is going to take your master from you today? Yes, I know, he replied. So be quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Stay here. The Lord has sent me to the Jordan. And he replied, As surely as the Lord lives and as you live, I will not leave you. So the two of them walked on. Fifty men from the company of the prophets went and stood at a distance, facing the place where Elijah and Elisha had stopped at the Jordan. Elijah took his cloak, rolled it up, and struck the water with it. The water divided to the right and to the left, and the two of them crossed over on dry land. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Tell me, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit, Elisha replied. You have asked a difficult thing, Elijah said. Yet if you see me when I am taken from you, it will be yours. Otherwise it will not. As they were walking along and talking together, suddenly a chariot of fire and horses of fire appeared and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha saw this and cried out, My father, my father, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha saw him no more. Then he took hold of his garment and tore it in two. Elijah then picked up Elijah's cloak that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. He took the cloak that had fallen from Elijah and struck the water with it. Where now is the Lord, the God of Elijah, he asked. When he struck the water, it divided to the right and to the left, and he crossed over. All right, there's a lot of things we can take from this story, a lot of things we can break down. Um, but I want to fo- focus specifically on the relationship between the two men. It's going to be confusing. I'm going to twist the names around, I'm sure, because their names are so similar. Elijah, the prophet. Elisha, his, men- his, his protege, his, his um, mentee. So we're going to look at this like he's a mentor and a mentee is the idea. The author doesn't go into a lot of detail about the two men here in the passage we look at. Actually, there's an eight-year gap from where we, we, we skipped. From the end of chapter 19... 1 Kings chapter 19 to the beginning of 2 Kings chapter 2, eight years pass, but we never even hear the name Elisha again. So there's not a lot of the relationship between the two that we actually see in the Bible. Um, But I want to talk about two lessons that we can learn from them about mentorship, about being a mentor. Um, First of all, before we do that, though, the Bible is completely littered with, with examples of mentorship. It never uses the word mentor uses a different word, and we'll talk about that, but the, whole, the Old Testament, the New Testament, you can see it, it's prevalent throughout that this is a, a specific design plan for teaching is through this mentorship relationship, I think. Um, I truly believe that. We see it in the Old Testament, and it's just relationship after relationship. Je- Jethro mentors Moses, who mentors Joshua, who mentors the leaders of the Israeli army. Naomi mentors Ruth. Eli mentors Samuel who then goes on to mentor both Saul and David. David goes on to mentor Solomon, and Solomon goes on to mentor the the Queen of Sheba. Our men in this story, Elijah mentors Elisha, who goes on to mentor the King of Israel, Joash. Daniel 
um, mentors King Nebuchadnezzar. Mordecai um, mentors Esther, who goes on to mentor King Artaxerxes. Um, and then in the New Testament, obviously the most prevalent one, the most obvious one is Jesus and his 12. But also after the passing of Jesus, we see in Acts, Aquila and Priscilla, who mentors Apollos. And then Paul, who mentors Titus and Timothy. And Timothy, who goes on to mentor Epaphras. And the Bible says other faithful men. And those faithful men go on to plant dozens of churches in Asia. And basically, we're here today because of that mentorship of Paul to Timothy to those men who planted all those churches. The, the modern idea of what a church looks like began without those mentoring relationships. The Bible continuously affirms a relational model of learning and growing in faith. The New Testament refers to this model as discipleship. So instead of mentorship, discipleship is what the Bible says, but it's the same thing. Back to the relationship at hand, though. Elijah's mentoring of Elisha isn't unique, as Elisha is, is literally training his protege. He's training him to do his job. It's like shadowing a job, shadowing your boss to take over for your boss. That's basically what, Eli what Elisha's doing here. Um, there's even a literal handing off of a mantle here. Elijah loses his cloak when he goes to heaven. Elisha picks it up and uses it immediately. Um, it's much more concrete than anything you or I are probably going to experience in our faith journeys, but I believe that it holds two lessons for us today, okay? Lesson number one is mentors live life with their disciples and lead by example. The idea of leading someone is, to me, completely intimidating. Personally, I've struggled with doubts and feelings of unworthiness. I've often thought I wasn't good enough, wrestled with the misconception that I had to be perfect or at least seem perfect to be a mentor. But that, that idea is, is wrong. It's just plain false. Um, several years ago, I was mentoring a student in the high school youth ministry um, while struggling through some of these feelings. Um, one evening, I was hanging out with him and another friend of mine. My friend, the, not the student, the other friend, was telling a lewd story, and I, I became visibly upset with him. I pulled him aside. I told him, hey, man, you cannot talk like this in front of my student. He got angry back at me and basically said, man, that's hypocritical. If he wasn't around, you'd be laughing about this. You'd be having a good time. You're not acting the way you should, basically, is what he told me. And to be honest with you, he was right. I acted differently when that student was around. I think it's natural to do that, but I don't think it's correct. I don't think it's right. Um, leading a Christ-like life, being a mentor, is not about being perfect or even pretending to be perfect. It's more about humility. It's about admitting our faults, admitting our shortcomings, being honest when we're wrong, repenting from our failures, and honestly just trying to be better, trying to do better. Um, I wasn't doing my student any good by pretending to be better than I was. In truth, I was probably doing more harm by perpetuating the myth that Christians have to act holier than thou. I think some of the best times with the students, I'm a youth sponsor, and I think some of the best times with the students in what, come when you're just open. I'm open, I'm honest, I talk about my struggles, I talk about the things that I deal with so that they can see that it's okay to not be perfect. I think sometimes we, we buy into that idea in our culture, especially, and I don't mean culture of the world, I mean culture of the church, that we have to act like we got it all together. That if the person sitting next to me looks like they got it all together, and I don't look like I got it all together, there's something wrong with me. And that's not the case. None of us have it together. There's only one person who ever lived this life perfectly, and it certainly wasn't me. It wasn't any of you either. So I think... By leading by example, one of the biggest things you can do in a mental relationship is just be open, just be honest, just talk about what you struggle with. 
Um, Elijah wasn't perfect. Um, he didn't pretend to be either. Um, he had massive spiritual highs where he was faithful and God did amazing things through him. But he also had devastating lows. As Annie kind of talked about before, he ran from his responsibilities. When, when Jezebel came after him, he was like, man, I don't want any part of this. And he ran. And he ran. He fled from God. He fled from his responsibilities. And it even came to a point where he was like, okay, God, I just want to die. I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to do this anymore. I want to die. And if that's, through, that's, that's throughout the Old Testament as well. We see King David do that as well. We see Jonah do that. We see Moses do that. We see all of these great examples of faith in the Bible who aren't perfect. So then why do we look at ourselves in the mirror and say, hey, you've got to be perfect? It's not right. Um, my student didn't care that I was perfect, to be honest with you. He wasn't looking for me to be perfect. I think really that it just meant a lot to him that someone older and more experienced in life was willing to spend time with him, to see his potential and to invest in him. I think it can be a temptation to over-spiritualize mentoring sometimes. Um, the learning process of a disciple is most effective walking side by side with someone rather than just sitting in a classroom and learning. It's just as important for them to see you living a Christ-like life and treating others with loving kindness as it is for them to study scripture. Some of the most important times I had with this student were just living life. We'd go to dinner, we'd go to the movies. In fact, one of my favorite memories with him, we did nothing. I mean, we went to Manhattan and went grocery shopping at Aldi and we were just being silly and being stupid and, and, and literally grocery shopping. And it's a memory that I look on fondly that, that I had with him of time lived with him, basically. Um, just like this, Elijah mentored Elisha by living life and allowing him to shadow him through things that he was already doing. He showed him what it was to be God's prophet by just letting him tag along. In the text, we see Elijah lead by example. It's not a coincidence that in chapter 2 of 2 Kings, we see Elijah perform a miracle. He splits the Jordan River, they walk across on dry land. And then he ascends to heaven, and literally five verses later, in, in verses 12 and 13, Elisha picks up his cloak, his mantle, does the exact same miracle. It's not a coincidence. It's not an accident that, that the author talks about that. It's, it's very important. Um, he is the prophet of Israel now. Elijah has gone. Elisha has ascended to that prophet chair. And how does he know how to be prophet? He does what his mentor did. He saw him do it. He imitates him. And now he's ready to do it himself. I guess really what I'm saying here on point one is that Christian mentors only need walk alongside their mentees. Set an example of how to live a Christian life. Mentoring entails more than merely passing on knowledge about God. It involves showing people how to love and serve God. Lesson number two. Lesson number two is about the disciple. Disciples actively pursue their mentors. When we first meet Elisha in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 19, he's busy living life. He's out on the farm. He's, he's plowing the fields with his, his father's oxen. Elijah literally runs by and throws a cloak on him, is what we see him do. He doesn't stop and say a word. He doesn't explain. He doesn't talk about why. He just throws his cloak on him, and he runs, which seems pretty odd, but um, it makes a lot more sense when you realize the, the, the meaning of the cloak. The cloak that a prophet in the Old Testament would wear was literally, they called it the mantle, and it was God's 
It was, the, the, it was an outward sign to the people that he was God's chosen prophet. So just the fact that he was wearing this cloak, people would be able to say, that's God's prophet. And so Elijah takes the cloak and throws it over Elisha, no explanation, and just takes off. Just like the 12 in the New Testament, Elisha doesn't ask questions. He doesn't stop. He doesn't think about it. He doesn't pray about it. He just goes. He, he catches up with Elijah. He says, let me kiss mommy and daddy goodbye and then I'm following you. He says, okay, go take care of your business and then come. So what he does is he goes back to the fields, he breaks down his plow, he shatters the plow, he slaughters the oxen and feeds it to the people. And that's a pretty, that's a pretty revolutionary act. He's not giving himself a way to back out. That would be like you or I quitting our jobs and selling our homes and just going. Not praying about it, not asking for advice from our friends or people that we trust, just hearing the voice of God and doing. Whew, I don't know that I could do that. That's pretty intimidating. I can't really imagine the faith that that takes. Like I said before, we don't see a lot more of their relationship. Eight years pass between this and the next section. We don't know exactly what happens in those eight years, except for the fact that Elisha is serving Elijah and learning from Elijah and doing what Elijah asked him to do, basically. Um, Elisha spends that eight years living with, serving, and learning from Elijah. When we next see the two of them together in 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah tells Elisha to go. He says, leave me. He says, get out of here. And again, I'm not exactly sure, but my idea is that he's, he knows he's about, to, he's about to leave earth. And that can be a pretty personal thing, and maybe he just wants to do it alone. Maybe he just wants to be alone with God and go. But Elisha says, uh-uh, if you're here, I'm here. This is what we've been doing. This is how you've been teaching. I want to glean as much knowledge from you as I can before you go. And maybe that's him not being ready, but maybe that's him just being a good disciple and saying, hey, where you go, I go. I want to follow. Um, he knows um, that his mentor is about to leave. I mean, people tell him it three times in the story. And he, he basically keeps saying, just, just stop talking about it. I know. I get it. He's about to leave. Leave us alone. Right? Um, just like Elijah and Elisha here, disciples need to seek out their mentors. In our lives, it's all too easy to become complacent. If I'm the one that's in the relationship is, that's being mentored, I think it's, it's easy to just lay back, let complacency take over, and let the mentor do all the work. But I think very clearly here we see that that is not the model. That's not the design. That's not how it's supposed to be. Um, if we sit back and wait for growth to happen, growth isn't going to happen. We have to be active participants in our growth. We need to be intentional about following and learning. Um, and my best example of this is, is Jesus. If you don't pursue Jesus, you're not going to get to know Jesus. Our number one mentor as Christians is Jesus. He showed us how to live. He showed us what it was like to serve God and to love people. And if we're not doing the things that he did, then we're not really pursuing after him. Being a mentor, though, a lot of times, again, I think we have the tendency to just let things go, be dis not be active, be, be not, not be purposeful in our own learning and growth. It's okay to have doubt. It's okay to be vulnerable. It's okay to ask questions. If your mentor does something that you're not sure why he did it, talk to him about it. Ask him about it. If you, there are things you don't get or if there are things about Jesus or God or Christianity that you don't get and you're new to the faith, those are natural things. Even if you're not new, I have doubts. I've been a Christian for 20 years and I have doubts. 
It's okay, those are natural, those are normal things. Okay, I wanna transition a little bit and talk about application, because I think a lot of times we can look at the Old Testament particularly and just it kind of goes over our head and we can say, how do I apply that to my life, okay? So there's three things I wanna reflect on, three questions I wanna ask about this passage. Question number one, which am I? Am I Elijah or am I Elisha? I need to identify which of those men in this story I identify with and I need to be. Um, Where are you in your faith journey? If you haven't accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord, it's pretty obvious you're an Elisha, right? If you're new to your faith, you might be an Elisha, right? If you feel comfortable leading by example and loving others like Jesus loved you, you might be more of an Elijah. But honestly, I would argue that most of us, myself included, are probably a little bit of both. Um, I believe that most of us are Elishas. I believe in lifelong learning. I believe in lifelong discipleship. Until I die, I've got more to go. I have more to grow. I have more to learn. Um, That's one of the the, the harshest lessons I've learned over the last decade of my life is that I don't know everything. Um, (laughs) There are things that I don't get. There are things that I don't understand. And to pretend like I do is is false. I don't. I don't. I don't have it all. I don't know it all. I don't have, I said this in a board meeting once, I don't have a monopoly on knowledge. I don't have a monopoly on truth. Only Jesus has that. And until I'm with Jesus in heaven, I've got to grow. I've got to be better today than I was tomorrow. I've got to be better tomorrow. I mean, I've got to be better today than I was yesterday. I've got to be better tomorrow than I am today. There's always room to be better. Um, Honestly, I think some of us are just Elishas, but I think the vast, and I hope the vast majorities of us are also in some way Elijahs. Um, Even someone new in their faith can be a mentor. Kevin's sitting down here in the front row. He's very new to the faith. He hasn't been doing this a long time. He's already stepping up and he's he's a middle school youth sponsor. He's not just living life and hanging out with those kids. He's taken an active role this year and him and Caleb are leading the middle school youth group. And so that to me, is proof of this concept. Even new believers can be mentors. Find someone who's younger than you. Find someone who's more or less mature in your faith than you. Um, Another example of that, don't let youth exclude you. High schoolers, how much impact can you have by just letting middle schoolers tag along? Middle schoolers, how much impact can you have by just letting a fourth grader or a third grader hang out with you and do the things you're already doing? That can be mentorship. Just spend time with them. Just live life with them. You're never too young to be a mentor. Maybe if you're a baby, I don't know. But other than that. um, My philosophy on this honestly is have a mentor, be a mentor. If you're a Christian, have a mentor, be a mentor. All right, question number two. This one's a little bit more difficult. How do I find my Elisha or my Elijah? What do I need to do? All right, I've identified which one I am. How do I go about finding someone to lead me or finding someone that I can lead? Um, Obviously, first and foremost, the first step to anything like this is pray about it. Ask God to bring someone into your life. Ask God to reveal someone who's already in your life, maybe. Um, Ask God where he wants you to lead, who or who he wants to lead you. Um, Pray for someone that you can watch love Jesus and love people. 
Pray for someone that can lead you. But even just as importantly, be active. Don't sit back. Don't wait for it to happen. Just like I talked about with growth, if you're not an active participant, nothing's going to happen. If you need a mentor, if you want a mentor, you need to go out and look for a mentor. Don't sit there and say, God, bring him to me. God, bring him to me. Say, God, bring me to him. God, show me who. God, reveal to me, right? Be active in it. Don't just sit back and expect it to happen. Um, it's your responsibility. It's on you. If you want a mentor, seek one out. Ask someone that you respect to lead you and let you tag along and live life with them. And on the, the other spectrum, find someone to lead. This one to me is a lot easier because I don't have to actively seek out someone and get their permission. I don't need your permission to mentor you. I just need to start inviting you along. Um, identify someone that you see that is struggling. Identify someone that you see that you connect with maybe that is a little bit younger than you. Identify someone that's maybe a little less mature in their faith than you are. And just invite them along. Ask them to hang out. Take them to dinner. Take them to the movies. Spend time with them. That's going to come naturally. You're going to be able to lead them in ways just by living life and loving God. You're going to have impact on them. Lastly, and I think this is important too, and I think we, we're really blessed in the congregation, we have to be able to do that, do this. Seek out intergenerational relationships. We have a huge diversity of generations just sitting in this room right now. From middle schoolers to octogenarians, you know, basically in everyone in between, I think we sometimes get tempted to spend time with people that are like us, that are our own age group, and I don't think there's anything bad about that, but... Mentoring happens from generation to generation. Even if they're new to their faith, there's lessons to be learned from someone who's older than you, some, someone who's lived life more than you, someone who's been here longer than you have. Be intentional about seeking out people that are older than you and younger than you to spend time with. Um, naturally, I don't gravitate to, towards this. I'm the type of person that I'm most comfortable around three, four, five people that I really know and I really like, and that's how I want to spend my time. So I have to get out of my comfort zone to do this, and that's okay. I think that's where growth happens, when you're uncomfortable, when you're doing things you wouldn't do naturally. All right, lesson number three, and this is where I want to close. Um, it would be remiss of me to not talk about discipleship in the New Testament. I've spent a lot of time talking about this relationship in the Old Testament, but we've been given uh, a new revelation when Jesus came. Um, it's clearly this, this text we've talked about is about mental relationships within our faith, within the Old Testament. But Jesus comes along and gives us the Great Commission. In Matthew 28, 19, he says, go. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I think that this is not a suggestion. <laughs> it's, it's, it's more than just a command. It's, a, it's an imperative. If you're a Christ follower, it's important to do this. Um, I think it comes number three. Lesson number one, command number one, love God. Command number two, love people. Command number three, go and make disciples. That's it. If we're going to talk about what Jesus asked us to do, those are the three things. Love God, love people, make disciples. And honestly, if we're looking at a mentor relationship and only looking at people in this room, we're going about it wrong. Um, I have a friend who's very outgoing. She's very opinionated. She's loud. She's charismatic. In most cases, she's the life of the party. 
Um, she's the center of attention. But my friend has a rule. She never talks about politics, and she never talks about religion. Um, she says it's just too personal, and that she doesn't want to view or offend anyone with her viewpoints. My friend goes to church because I've talked to her about it, and I've asked her about it, and she loves Jesus. I think she's bought into a half-truth, though, that our culture permeates. This idea that you can love Jesus and not talk about him. That you can love Jesus and not share that. This idea that the culture's really big on that it's okay for you to believe whatever you believe. It's okay for me to believe whatever I believe. You don't talk about it. I don't talk about it. We'll both just not talk about it, right? Um, it's wrong. And Scripture's pretty clear about it. Um, I agree with it to a point. That's why I called it a half-truth. My relationship with Jesus is personal in the fact that it drives who I am, it drives what I do, um, it's integral to the person that I am and want to be. But it's also very public because if I'm not sharing that, if I'm not talking about that, then I'm not doing command number three in the New Testament, which is create disciples. Go and share. Um, how can I say I love Jesus if I do not do what he commands? If I do not do what he does? The Great Commission is a commandment. I would argue, like I said, that it's the third most important commandment. Don't buy into the misconception that as long as everyone's happy and everyone's doing what they want to do, everything's okay, because that's not the truth. We live in a dead and dying world, and we have the cure. And how selfish is it of us to sit here with the cure and not distribute it? Um, I want to close with this. Um, we live, and this is going to be, uh, I hope it's a little controversial. I don't think we're doing this right if we're not being a little controversial. Um, we live in a dark place. We live in a lonely world. We live in a country where young men walk into public places and gun down their neighbors. We live in a country where the second and third most common types of death occurring with our teenagers is homicide and suicide. They're killing each other and they're killing themselves. We live in a world where we actually, this is, this is frightening to me, we live in a world where 50% of every marriage ends in divorce. In a country where 50%, and the sad thing about that is people are bragging about it because it's better than it used to be. This, the millennial generation, which I'm a part of, has married less often than the generations before them, and so they use the statistic and say, oh, marriage is getting better because less people are getting divorced, and that's not the case. Less people are getting married, and so there's fewer divorce. Um, we live in a dark place. We live in a place where we need to be the light. Um, to quote a fairly recognizable preacher, um, darkness cannot drive out darkness, only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate, only love can do that. Um, the last couple of weeks I've been working through this sermon and I've had um, something in the news more than anything has been on my mind. I've been looking at the shootings, the shootings at El Paso, the shooting in Dayton, specifically those are the two that um, I was about two weeks into preparing for this completely changed the way I looked at, at this sermon, completely changed the, the, the way I looked at mentoring relationships. Because honestly, I was going to talk about Elijah and Elisha and leave it there. I wasn't going to move on to the second part. Um, in the past, um, I've kind of had a tendency to just let that go without thinking about it too much. It, it's so frequent, it seems like it's commonplace, and I've, I've kind of just been desensitized to it. It's like every 13 hours, 
which is what literally what the difference was or the time span between those two shootings, we have someone else taking a gun into Walmart or into a school or into a church or into wherever, into a, a public place and shooting each other. Um, it seems like it's just a part of life now. I don't want to be that way. I don't want to be desensitized to it. I don't want to not think about it. Um, I hear a lot. I watch the news. I hear a lot of people talking about praying for the victims and their families, and that's good, and that's necessary, and I think that's something that we all should be doing. But for the first time, I've kind of had my eyes open to be praying for the shooter, especially the ones that, lie, that live. There's a, the kid down in El Paso. His name is Patrick, and he's in a dark place. He's lost. He's lonely. The news is reporting that he made uh, a manifesto of white supremacy, that he's got no remorse for what he did. He's in a place that I don't know that we've literally been, but a lot of people are at. He's given up hope. He doesn't have anything to live for. And so I've been praying for him, and I've been praying for his family. I had this conversation with Matt last week. Um, I never really thought about it this way, but where was the church? Where was the church? He's not from El Paso. He's from Dallas, I think. But in his community, there's signs that he was troubled already. Signs of misogyny, signs of things from teachers and fellow students that they knew about him when he was in school. And this isn't a high school kid, he's 21 years old. But they've known for at least three or four years that he was, was on a dark path. His mom called the police and asked about if it was okay for her son to buy this type of, of rifle. She didn't leave her name or her number or anything, so the police didn't investigate. But she was on her mind. She knew something was wrong with her kid. And so I guess my question is, as I've been working through this, is what if? What if someone in the church had seen Patrick? What if someone in the church had gone out of their way to make Patrick feel loved, to make Patrick feel important, to make Patrick feel seen? And honestly, I can't answer that question. Maybe nothing changes. Maybe he still walks into a Walmart and he, he guns down 22 people. He kills 22 people, but maybe not. I think from the perspective of the church, we need to look at this a little differently. We need to be more proactive, like I said. We need to be looking outside of our walls at people in our community who are hurting and shining light in their lives, loving them, even before speaking the name of Jesus, accepting them and loving them and telling them that I see them. Um, if someone had seen his pain, if someone had taken the time to be his mentor, maybe we wouldn't be talking about him. I don't know. I can't answer that question. But um, what I can say is that there are people in our community. There are people in Junction City. There are people on Fort Riley. There are people in Manhattan that are lost. There are people that we work with, that we go to school with, that we interact with every day that don't know Jesus. And we have a light, and they're living in darkness. And it's our responsibility to shine some light in that darkness. Um, so my challenge to you this morning is to go out. Seek out darkness and be light. Seek out people who need to be loved and love them. Please pray with me. Lord, we love you. Um, we thank you for the opportunity to live in a place where we can come and worship you, that we can come and gather together and meet with you and not be ostracized for it. Um, I just ask that you help us to live out your commandments. You help us to live out that biblical model of mentorship that you provide for us 
that we look for ways to lead, that we look for people to lead us, that we actively seek growth in our own lives. But more importantly, I ask that you give us and you reveal to us places of darkness in our community, places that we can shine a light, that we can speak your name, that we can love people that need to be loved. In your son's holy name, amen.